So I'm gonna have the opening words, and then we'll get started. And uh, and those opening words are that once again, under the guise of improving my teaching, um, I'm here to talk about Twin Peaks with a bunch of friends, and uh, hopefully to be a new friend, Andrew. Good to see you. Mm -hmm. And um, so there's something I do in my class. We do a little bit of film analysis. It's very light. It's an eighth grade class. And we do an exercise uh, and then kind of get into the habit of doing this exercise where people work in groups and everybody looks at a different element of the scene. And we try to simply just kind of do like a close read of the film scene. And then after it's over, everybody basically just tries to literally share what they saw as accurately as they can quickly. And then after that, the conversation can sort of uh, unfold. But we try to just keep it like, a, like factual based on whatever you were looking for at the beginning. So this I really just took from the internet, but it's a, <clears throat> it's a pretty good starting point. You guys would know better than me. Um, and we have decided uh, off camera to look at certain scenes tonight. But nobody picked specifics for the first scene, which is going to be Dan at Winkies. So everybody gets a chance to just grab something right now. What would you like to focus on? I was well, thinking um, like some of the angles and camera type stuff for that. Cool. I was thinking of the soundtrack just because I think sound's very important. There's like a subtle nefariousness that is uh, building up in this scene. So I'm going to go with soundtrack and more of a broad stroke. Great. Yeah, I uh, definitely think we need to talk about the camera movement in this scene. Um, it is a scene I have studied uh, to a great extent recently. And uh, it's one of the scenes, uh, it's fairly rare in that we have Lynch and Mary Sweeney. Um, and uh, at least those two commenting specifically, not only on the camera movement, but what it might mean. Oh, okay. So uh, it's really kind of important that that aspect of it. Uh, I, I'll, I'll, t I'll take performance because that's probably something I'll be able to say something about. How about you, Joel? I guess I'll go with editing, which is what I'm doing on some of the other ones already. So sticking with the theme, I guess. You got it. So with our goal of trying to be uh, efficient with our time, let us just begin. And... I just wanted to come here. Winkies? This Winkies. Okay. Why this Winkies? It's kind of embarrassing. Go ahead. I had a dream about this place. Oh boy. You see what I mean? So you had a dream about this place. Tell me. Well, <clears throat> it's the second one I've had, but they're both the same. They start out that I'm in here, but it's not day or night. 
It's kind of half night, you know? But it looks just like this, <laughs> except for the light. And I'm scared like I can't tell you. Of all people, you're standing right over there. By that counter. You're in both dreams. And you're scared. I get even more frightened when I see how afraid you are, and... Then I realize what it is. <laughs> There's a man... in back of this place. He's the one who's doing it. I can see him through the wall. I can see his face. hope that I never see that face ever outside of a dream. That's it. So, you came to see if he's out there. To get rid of this god-awful feeling. Right then. So one one thing I do want to say is uh, I'm a little sorry because the sound 
uh, was compromised. I think sharing it in the setting, but nonetheless, we've all seen the scene. And uh, so everybody gets 60 seconds, just to, up to 60 seconds for this first round, just to share what you noticed or what you saw. And I'll go second. Are we just jumping in? Yep. Okay, well, I will jump in real quick then. Uh, so uh, what you see happen during the conversation between Dan and Herb is a lot of camera movement. And um, the camera seems to be floating around the two of them. And in fact, that was deliberate. Uh, Peter Deming and Lynch both wanted to, the, Deming himself actually says they wanted to convey um, a, a, a nervous feel to the story. And so they put the camera on what was called a floating jib. It's a camera attached to the end of a pole, and it allows them to sort of move the pole around a pivot, I think, and keep the camera in motion the entire time. And so that was deliberate. And, and Lynch said that it, it, it um, let's see, it was, it was part of the nightmare was what he was trying to convey. And Mary Sweeney, who's the editor of Mulholland Drive, said that the very subtle floating of the camera gives you this unstable feeling that someone is watching these characters. And that really is ultimately the way Lynch repurposed the material from the original Mulholland Drive pilot, um, which I think my theory would be that it's, uh, it's supposed to now represent the dream of a character named Diane Selwyn that you get the sense that there is a third presence uh, observing this exchange and that she is, is drawn to this place for, for perhaps a specific reason. Uh, but it's certainly a nervous, anxious feel that you get in the conversation. Cool. Um... I was, I was looking at the performances, and uh, I'm not sure if uh, face acting is a thing, but these are pretty much mostly face shots. And is it Patrick? Is that the actor's name who plays Dan? Patrick? Patrick Fischler. Yeah, uh, tremendous. Um, <clears throat> when they step outside, I would not be surprised if that was, like, not makeup to create that sweat on his face, because, like, throughout the scene, you just see... Uh, the veins starting slowly to rise to the surface and bulge. Um, his eyebrows, which are pretty distinctive, really did a lot of work. Um, I don't know the other actor's name, but he was um, he was interesting too because he kind of had like a. He, he, it seemed maybe just it was the suit talking or the body language, but he seemed to be more in a position of authority in terms of their relationship. And then as soon as he found out that he was also in the, in these dreams. Uh, his whole demeanor changed, like, really subtly. Uh, but, but, I mean, the star of the show here is um, Fischler's face, even just from the nose to the forehead. Um, but then he had these little smiles that would sort of, nervous smiles that would sort of creep in and out. Um, really just amazing. Uh, Andrew? Um, the thing that sticks out to me, and it goes on what John was saying about how they shot it on that jib, is how, I mean, this is a movie where like the objective and the subjective almost collapse in on each other, right? It's like LA, but it's like a dream LA. And just a small moment I love is how it goes from being this floating over the shoulder shot and then pushes in to become a POV for Herb, essentially. Um, Michael Cook's character looking at Patrick Fischler. 
And just the way that like this kind of objective over the shoulder shot becomes the subjective POV even pans over to see the counter is, I mean, just such a brilliant small touch for me. Um, Joel? Yeah, as far as editing goes, I, I had a couple of little observations that really stuck out to me on this viewing. One of them was the decision to stay on his face at a certain point. I think it was like three or four shots in where it seemed like you could cut away and his expression changes. It would almost be a natural point to cut away, but instead they hold on it and his whole expression shifts and it gives you this uncanny effect. And I think as you were saying, you know, Fischler's the star of the scene. It really pulls you into him. And to me, that's almost the moment where the scene really starts to take off. And then just other than that, I was struck by the introduction of certain angles at certain points, like when he turns around and you see like behind him and it's a new angle. It felt like every time they did that or when they inserted an insert, obviously, of the entrance sign on the restaurant and things like that, that they were almost opening up a new door. Like every step of the way, you can turn around here, you can go back, but they would make a decision that was leading you a little further down that corridor. <laughs> yes that effect and i think besides that it would be the editing is mostly a matter of pacing in this scene because there aren't that many shots to choose from so i liked the decision to hold on him as much as they do in spots where it feels like there were other options yeah Colin? Oh, and uh yeah as for me um before i get into the soundtrack i think that the, there's something very important this scene is that dan as he has said that as he talks about the dream, I think at some point he says, in both dreams, and that is, like, if there's any time that I change my theory, whether it's big or small about Mohan Drive, that is, like, the central crux for it, and I bring this up because when we go to, you know, outside of the diner, you just see, feel that slow dread building up. It's not really music, but it's more of this, like, ambient sound, and the thing is that the reason why I bring this up is that you know, every time I watch it, no matter how many times, there's always that part of me that just, like, jumps, like, internally. Because most movies, when I watch, like, horror movies, like, I watch it once and then I don't get scared after that. But there's a way that Lynch does this, where it's, like, no matter how many times I watch Mahalo Drive, there's just something about the combination of the sound, the way everything slows down, that uh, I, every time that jump happens, it just it just gets to me. The, um... Uh... This, the scene of the other guy at the counter, that scene, that shot happens again, again later, right, in the, in the movie? With uh, with Patrick Fischler standing there, and it's Naomi Watts who's seeing. Yeah, and okay. I should probably mention that Patrick Fischler, it feels like, for me at least, when we do revisit that scene, he has more of like an intensity than what we saw. Because, you know, in, in this scene we watch, he's like scared to death. But there's something... I can't quite say what it is, but there's some about like just his eyes where it's like they're not blinking. There's just something like just wrong. Um, again, like I know that's not the focus of it, but uh, again, come back to the whole in both dreams aspect. That's something I think about when it comes to that part about like you know dream versus reality. Well, we talked a little bit in the in the DMs before this um, about another scene that John was thinking about doing, which was like the scene, the party scene at the end, and I think you see the same thing in that second Patrick Fischler scene that you see in the party scene, which is her projecting her own emotional state onto everyone who is present or each person who is present for that particular moment. 
it's kind of a brilliant, you know, psychodramatic element of Mulholland Drive. So in that moment, the kind of fear of herself, because she's the monster behind the diner that she's feeling in that moment is projected onto Patrick Fischler in that, in that dream. So he's now embodying her fear and she's, you know, she's him and she's also the creature behind. It's just kind of brilliant, I think. The the way that Lynch sort of uh, makes the character um, not diffuse exactly, but like all all of the like almost scatter to all of these different scatter to all of these different characters and kind of uh, attach different parts onto them. It's like turning yourself into puzzle pieces or something that then have to be put back together, which I love. That's That's not a element, sorry. But <laughs> it's an interesting way to say it and to look at it. Who, who agrees with that? Or who's, who's drawn toward uh, which all was just saying there? I actually, I think that's a really good take because when I do <laughs> think of that creature, once again, I'm bringing back the whole in both dreams aspect. Mm-hmm. I think it is very important that uh, you know, one of the last sequences before we reach the final sequence is seeing that creature by the dumpster. And, uh, yeah, so I think of, like, you know, when she makes that deal with, um, I, I'm sorry, I'm blanking on the guy's name, but it's basically it's a done deal for the uh, assassination. And I just think of the proximity of Winky's Diner with that scene and the mm-hmm. fact that we see that creature at the beginning and the end, that there is... I'm in the middle of a period where I'm trying to like you know reinterpret Mohan Drive for myself, so I apologize for not being as articulate, but I do think there's something to what Joel's saying. Yeah, it's really interesting. Um, and real quick, um, for John, what's the sound effect at the beginning of the scene? Yeah, so uh, it was obviously added to the scene. Um, there's a smash cut from um, Rita slash Camilla, who's just fallen asleep in Aunt Ruth's apartment. It's a smash cut to that winky sign. And there's a siren, a loud siren going off. Uh, as I, it's supposed to uh, imply that there's a police car or an ambulance driving by the diner. Um, but um, my interpretation of that is that it is Diane's sort of warning to herself that this is fraught territory, that she is about to dream what is essentially the worst moment of her life. Uh, She, as uh, Colin was just saying, at that later scene where Diane is actually in the diner contracting the hit on Camilla, uh, is the moment where she crosses the line. Uh, Joe says to her, uh, you know, once you hand that over, it's a done deal. And, um, And so she makes the commitment. And once she does that, my interpretation is that she's selling her soul at that moment because it is at that moment that she looks up and she sees the man that will become Dan looking at her. And then there's a dissolve. I know we're talking about a different scene now, but there's a dissolve to the bum behind uh, Winkies holding the blue box. And my interpretation of that is that that's her soul. He's, she's sold her soul to the devil. And, and so that scene resonates in her mind when she's dreaming uh, so that opening shot is there's a siren. There's a siren sound. And this is definitely an alarming sound. Uh, and then, of course, the scene plays out uh, with Dan, essentially, as the surrogate Diane. And uh, uh, and then he encounters uh, that, that evil force behind the diner. That I think she's now dreaming what she imagined, if that makes any sense, when she herself was in the diner. Yeah. 
So yeah, she's the she's the yeah. creature you saw there. Hmm. Say that again. I'm sorry, I didn't hear. Oh, I was just saying she is she's the per she's the person behind the diner that he's seeing in his nightmare. Um, because he's literally looking. He's he literally was looking at her in real you know real life. If we can use that yeah. uh, terminology for Mulholland Drive. Are those two yeah. are those two guys there in the booth, or is that like somebody uh, dreaming of two guys in a booth, which represents something else? I interpret it all as her dream up until she wakes up. I mean, I know there's other readings of it. I know some people hate that reading, and honestly, um, to me, no. that's the most resonant <laughs> by far way to look at it. Hmm. And, I, even psychic imagining; it doesn't have to be she's asleep. You know, it can be her dying vision, whatever. But I believe I see all of that as her perspective, rationalizing or trying to digest what she's just done and all the things that have happened to her and tell a story about it in like an indirect way. I think that the dream interpretation is... Um almost the only way you can look at it. And I, I don't mean to impose uh, uh, an interpretation because with a Lynch film, that's a really dangerous thing to do. But Lynch is so overt about showing someone fall asleep at the beginning of the film. Mm -hmm. That person wakes up in the same bedroom at a certain point. <laughs> that's Diane waking up. And in interviews, Lynch has actually said he couldn't come up with an ending. And then he came up with an ending that tied everything together and made the whole thing a lot simpler. And so it's, it, I mean, yes, there's other ways to look at it and I wouldn't discount them, but he sure seems to go out of his way to take the elements of the pilot and make them reflections of her real life. And that's mm -hmm. what the act of Mulholland Drive shows you all the stimuli that resurfaces in her dreaming mind. And just yeah. it, it also well, kind of explores just that basic concept he would do in Twin Peaks to Return, the question of like who is the dreamer, right? Like I mean, this is you know a similar idea. This is like her dream world, so it's both. It's kind of like real and not, you know, at the same time. Yeah, and yeah. what's interesting is I I've had I've had. I'm sorry, John. Oh yeah. I'm managing the time tonight. Okay, all right. Because I know your time is limited, so uh, I'm going to let you close it out, but keep keep it succinct, please. Oh, I'm closing it out? <laughs> yeah. Okay, real quick, then I will just say that Lynch had the pilot, and I've had an opportunity to see the pilot. Uh, not the 88-minute version, but the one that he wanted to do. And from studying that and studying how he edited it for the film, what he added in terms of sound and what he added in terms of some inserts. He is, he is, he's using those techniques, I think, to restructure it and imply that it is a dream. As we, as we transition to the next scene, which uh, Andrew selected, um, I'm just going to read a short text that my uh, friend sent me. He's a sound designer um, and I just told him this was one of the scenes we were going to look at. And he said, uh, the sound design in the Winky scene is recycled in the return, which is interesting. And it's reversed at several times during the return. Uh, for example, when the woodsman is in jail next to Hastings, I guess that's the woodsman with the floating head. Um, and I think possibly Sarah uh, at the grocery store. 
um, and one or two other times, supposedly. So that was his, that was his little discovery about uh, the connect one connection between Mulholland, Mulholland Drive and the return. So that's pretty. I, oh, sorry, I was just gonna say, I kind of think if it's the sound effect I'm thinking of, that it's also used in Firewalk with me. It might even come from Firewalk with me. And mm -hmm. um, I don't know if we'll get to the scene, but the, the scene that I uh, yeah. mentioned of the Leland and Laura in the car, and it's like, oof, like kind of a bubbling up sound almost. Yeah. Sometimes things can happen just like this. Green corn. Do you see cream corn on that plate? requested no cream corn. Do you see cream corn on that plate? Palmer's place on the Meals on Wheels. She's dead. Did you know her well? No. Okay, Mrs. Tremont. I'll be back tomorrow to pick this up and to bring your lunch. They used to bring me hospital food. Imagine that. Young lady, you might ask Mr. Smith next door. He was Laura's friend. 
Satan um, should be there. Mr. Smith does not leave his house. seemed like a very nice girl. I I was focusing on sound, but I didn't have a good sound quality, so I'm sorry for that. But um, Andrew, would you like to start? Yeah, I'll jump in. I'll start with scene placement. And it's my opinion, this is really almost one of the most important scenes in the uh, stylistic and thematic development of the show that we see in this early second season. And a lot of it owes almost to how it's reconceived by Lynch on set. I mean, I went back and looked at the original teleplay, and the scene is written by Harley Payton. is really very simple, expository. Um, she directs Donna toward Harold Smith, and the kid does a more mundane, like, card trick, and then that's it. Um, <clears throat> but the way Lynch reconfigures the scene, I mean, really, to me, is almost like an inflection point for everything that comes. Because, I mean, previously, any lodge spirit that you see in the show has been seen in, like, a dream or a vision or a near-death experience by just certain people. I mean, but with here, you've got Donna, who's, you know, heretofore a very mundane-type character. She walks in and is greeted by these spirits in broad daylight. And, and that's going to become kind of a norm for the series, with Mike introduced through Philip Gerard, and then... Bob and the little man appear when Josie dies. Bob tests out hosts. And then, of course, throughout Firewalk with Me and The Return, the, the other stuff directed by Lynch, we're going to see that more and more often with these spirits and also stuff like, you know, Tolpas and, and Woodsman and, and so on. And it also, I think, really, because, I mean, these first two episodes really are what I think of when I think of the visual language of the original series um, like the season two premiere is this very wild at heart kind of grab bag of, of flourishes, you know. And then this one, with that scene in particular, I really feel like that and Ronette's dream cement that kind of free-floating anxiety with the droning sound design, um, the really pregnant editing, a lot of, like mm, a lot of Lynch's um he likes to show you a character's face and then cut to a POV and you see a lot of that. And he also elevates the scene beyond just being from Donna's point of view and shows you, um, you know, like it starts with the Tremonts and later ends with the Tremonts. Like he elevates them to be just as important in the scene. Joel, th thank you, Andrew. Joel? Uh, as far as the performance goes, I was really struck by the sense that the little boy is in control of the situation. Um, Francis Bay, the old woman, seems nervous at times it's almost and after donna leaves too she's like looking off and he's always looking in the same direction he never really breaks concentration uh it, it's like this 
this observer, this little observer off in the corner. And even the way, unfortunately, I think the clip cut off before we heard it, but even the way that he says, she seems like a very nice girl mm-hmm. to the supposed the grandmother. Um, it's like he's telling her his sort of judgment of the situation as if he's the authority there. I, I just find something very interesting about that. So that was the kind of the main thing that stuck out. I was interested to the fact that Donna is the one encountering them. I think it's one of the only times until maybe the return, I have to think about what's in the return, where, because I th- I do think there's more of this in the return, but where like a character outside of just like Cooper or Lara, or I guess Josie is, no, because Josie's dead at that point. Like Cooper or Lara basically are the only ones who seem to usually see the spirits, um, Sarah, I suppose, too. Donna is like a very strange character to bring into that world. So seeing her reactions, and granted too, at the time this aired, it wasn't necessarily clear they were spirits yet. And that decision may not have even been made until Firewalk with me. Um, well, no, because by episode 16, we know they don't really live there. So, yeah. Anyways. <laughs> I'm, I'm going to be a taskmaster as far as the clock good, good. goes. Um, Colin, what were you looking at? And tell us some things you saw in 60 seconds or less, please. I was looking at the uh, the use of shots, and I was actually surprised when I watched this in a more self-contained way, because this parallels the scene with Laura and the Tremont slash Chalfonts and Fire Walk me in that regard, because it starts off with like a combination of wide or medium shots, but once they get to that proximity with the Tremont slash Chalfonts, there's something about how up close everything is, there's something about like the use of sound... There's some that's foreboding in the air. And there's like a certain bit of knowledge that irreversibly changes the trajectory of Laura and Donna's uh, courses. Uh, like, you know, of course, with Laura, she finds out that the man is under the under the fan. And she finds out that Bob is Leland. Uh, it suppresses it effectively. But then in the case of Donna, she uh, this is when she will meet Harold because of the Tremont slash Chalfonts. And that takes her on a trajectory where he will end his life and she'll feel this bearing responsibility for it. And also, that's not even going into the secret diary that Laura has. So I know my 60 seconds are up, but I can expand much further as we go on. Yeah, I should have given you a few more because I don't have too many seconds to take up. Um, I had a hard time hearing the sound. It was it was sort of a continuous, seemed to be sort of droning. Uh, I would borrow your word, foreboding. Um, it's a scary scene. Uh, there's one or two moments of punctuation that make you just sort of sit back just a tad. Um, there doesn't seem to be sort of classic Lynchian uh, sound design, like like trickery, not not trickery, but just you know like really dazzling type things. But if I were to listen to it again in a proper way, I'm, I'm sure I would hear a lot more subtlety. But for the most part, it's rather droning, foreboding. Uh, I, I found this to be a very very scary scene and confusing, <laughs> as most of the scenes are, John. Yeah, I chose composition. I wasn't even sure what I was going to see when I uh, started the scene. It's been a while since I've seen it. But uh, I did that because what fascinated me about Twin Peaks when it was first aired, and I watched that episode the night of aired, was how Lynch was bringing sort of the film sensibility to television. And television... Um, doesn't allow for a lot of that, really, because essentially the aspect ratio and the screens themselves in your house are small. And um, 
And so the techniques then are to, you know, basically close-ups of faces, uh, you know, over-the-shoulder shots, back and forth, et cetera. Uh, but Lynch brings this cinematic sensibility to it. And so you got this great, great shot of the entire room. Uh, uh, you see Mrs. Tremont in the bed. You see the little boy. He's off in the, almost in the corner, but he's there. You see the entire you see the entire cluttered room that they live in. Um, and so you get this sort of widescreen shot on a small screen. And I think that's very effective. Uh, you get another shot sort of similar to that later, almost at the end of the scene where Lynch places the camera at the very end of the bed, looking all the way up the bed uh, at Mrs. Tremont. Uh, sort of, but it's almost in the background. Any other director would have just shot her, you know, at a medium close-up kind of shot, but Lynch doesn't do that. And he does that, I think, because he's trying to create a larger world, a wider world on this small screen. And it's so powerful. It's one of the things that just I loved about Twin Peaks when it was originally on. This is one of those scenes that is just uh, epic. Epic in its own way. I'm glad you picked it, Andrew. Um, what is happening in this scene? Can you summarize the scene or tell us what's happening here? So to me, Anything? yeah, we've got we've got these lodge spirits, Mrs. Tremont and Pierre, um, essentially pushing Donna along. And and like like Joel says, it's it's strange that it's Donna. It typically won't be to the return when like the school principal sees woodsman and stuff, you know. Um and basically, they're just seeding these um, the path to, to come for her. You should go see Harold Smith, and and even other things that we wouldn't know at the time, like Jaun Am Solitaire, um, in just this really creepy way that you don't understand the full weight of at the time, which is just kind of a cool touch. So they're helpers. I would say, as far as lodge spirits are, as far as that goes, yeah. <laughs> Yeah, because I've always had that feeling about, uh, like, Mrs. Tremont as more of a helper than a, a harmer, but um, I think a lot of people don't agree with that. But that's it's just like if the they're agents of, of, it's like if they're agents of realization, sometimes you might not want to make the realization, if that makes sense. Yeah, that's interesting. Um, gentlemen? Uh, any, other, any other thoughts on this scene? I'd just briefly say, yeah, I, I agree with that. And I kind of think almost all the spirits other than um, Bob, until we get to like the woodsmen and stuff, are like kind of helpers in the context, like the little man, the, the Philip Gerard, certainly the giant is an obvious one. But even the ones who seem more sinister, you kind of get the sense, even if it's just for their own purposes of, of countering Bob, that they are on the side of giving Laura more information and stuff. But I know different takes on that and if i could say one last thing just to like you know if, if we're going to move on um we, we're not I, in a rush yeah okay i i just love how this lynch the way that he frames pov shots you'll always see what the character is looking at and it'll be off screen and then it will cut to the pov and just the way that draws you in just really underscores like the un, like he doesn't need a visual effect he can just cut the corn being there and then then it's not and it, and it draws you in because he creates so much suspense by framing his pov shots like that um and i also love how he cuts a, like the original teleplay doesn't say cut to interior mr mon says enter lynch lynch chooses to cut away at the beginning and the end of the scene which really just 
creates that sense that something important is happening here. Just two really great editing touches I love. I'm wondering, Andrew, when, when you're kind of just watching film or shows <clears throat> casually, do you pick up on these things, like kind of as you're taking it in, or is it more like in a second or third watch? Do you, you kind of see it's it? On a sec second or third. Okay. Second or third, yeah. Yeah, because as we, as we sort of divvy up the uh, things to look at, it's it's almost an overwhelming amount of uh, details that could potentially be paid attention to, and yet we we kind of experience it, you know, mm -hmm. holistically, organically, which is probably the best way. So mm -hmm. I'm not sure if to what extent there's value in what we're doing, but I still I, th I still think it's an interesting exercise to sort of like tease apart some of the threads. And actually, I just want to actually uh, go with what Andrew was saying earlier, is that those uh, first two episodes of season two, I think that with Lynch directing those two, I think for me at least, those set up like the mythos of like what the original series really sticks with me. Uh, I guess, you know, well, I'll talk about the season premiere in particular, is that I love how uh, he, how the mythos are introduced like pretty much right out of the gate. It has everything as like the comedy and the drama, the horror, like all within the confines, or at least primarily in the confines of a hospital, to show that like all these great emotions don't really have to be in these different locations. They can all just be like in close proximity with each other. But the next episode is where we start to build off from that. And uh, with the tree months and shell fonts, I think that was some that like really just kind of changed the course of like how I view these like I guess Black Lodge entities from here on. And I know you know we're we're gonna try to keep it focused on just season two in this scene in particular but i just wanted to reaffirm that i actually do agree with andrew on those regards can, can you say just a touch more about that when you say this kind of shifted how you were viewing these entities like henceforth uh well i in guess uh, you know i'll start off with uh with the season two premiere with the giant because i i think a lot of people forget about it but if you take away the dream sequence from uh from the uh, season one Season one is a relatively normal show. Like, I don't like to use normal or weird when I discuss Lynch, but I think, of, but the reason why I say that is that when Cooper's on the floor and uh, and uh, the giant says, like, the owls are not what they seem, I'll give you three clues. And then uh, the giant, you know, he he sees him in a recurring manner throughout season two. Like, for me, that was, like, a the first time I watch it, and still on rewatches, I just think, like, wow, like, this world just opened up so much more. And, you know, stuff that we see in Fire Walk Me, the Mark Frost books, uh, The Return. Uh, yeah, that scene with uh, the giant, uh, that really just opened that. And as far as the Tremons go, I was saying that, you know, in the 60-second time slot that I had about how they change the trajectory of, like, these characters. And uh, it takes them on irreversible courses as well, because had the, the Tremont slash Chalfons not been there for Laura, she would have known to go to the go back to the home to find Bob, like, you know, under the fan. And then uh, as for Donna, she could have easily, you know, had it not been for the Tremonts and Chalfons, that she could have easily avoided Harold, and this would have been, like, a whole ordeal of, like, not finding out this other facet of Laura, not bearing the weight of Harold's death, um, and, and all these other things that she would do in her investigation to find out what happened to Laura. Interesting. Um, John, do you want to weigh in? Shall we move to the next scene, guys? Um, I'll just, I'll just quickly say, and someone spoke earlier about, I forget if it was, uh, Andrew or Joel, but spoke about sort of the evolving nature of the show, which, you know, are the Tremonts good guys or bad guys? Uh, they're good guys in this episode. They're bad guys later. Uh, that's only because uh, the, 
the show keeps changing and new people keep coming in and Lynch keeps changing the direction. He doesn't want to do it that way. He wants to do it another. I only bring that up because I think it's just fascinating. We're talking about trajectories and where the plot is going, but no one really knew where it was going. I mean, they knew a few episodes out, but they didn't know. And they certainly didn't know what Lynch was going to do when he stepped on the set. When he stepped into the cafeteria and saw creamed corn on the menu for the day, literally. <laughs> yeah, that's I, the, I heard that's that. The, that's the beauty of the show. The beauty yeah. of the show is that it constantly was evolving, and it was this new thing, and uh, that's why we're still talking about it. My, my wife has a similar uh, philosophy of life. She's she's she just like yeah, it's going to work out. Don't ask me what I'm doing. But it's going to work out somehow. You know, there's like sort of a faith that uh, you just try to stay three steps in front of the bullet and you know it's going to work out eventually. Um, one thing that's that's cool with the cream corn. By the way, I, have, I guess I have two things to say. What is that? Um, we know what the Gorman Bosia becomes. But what is happening there? Is is Was it on the plate originally when Donna walked in? Because I'm thinking maybe it was never there. Um, how is this? You can't hold corn like that and then have clean hands afterwards. Like, what is happening? Oh, you're being way too literal. <laughs> Magic. Magic, yeah. It's all a dream. Well, uh, twin the Twin Perfect video, you know, the famous four and a half hour Twin Perfect video. One Twin Peaks once and for all, forever. Yeah. Yeah. It's Twin Peaks actually explained. Well, no, well, one really. Of his, uh, one I'm of sorry. His, uh, so I just had to put that out there. No, no, no. One, one of his best things I thought in that video, he kind of makes an argument that different characters are sort of like avatars or stand-ins for different cinematic techniques or for different concepts. And he he says the uh, the grandson is like a symbol for editing because literally things can just appear and reappear. And you you know you could sort of editing is like a metaphor for magic, so to speak. I thought that was a pretty cool part of his video. Um, but it's time for Joel's. Is that okay? Yeah. Sure. Um, sure. If you think we have, I mean, like I said, I don't want to prevent anyone else from no, going. No, no, so. no. We're, we got it. We got it. Okay.
screaming at you like a crazy person and then harassing my daughter? You all right, honey? Dad, are you all right? Did you come home during the day last week? Leave us alone! God damn it, get back to your work!
Where were you, Laura? I didn't see you. Um, I was just down the street. So, do you want me to jump right into it, Anthony? Yep. Okay. So you can have, um, you can have a little more than sixty seconds too. Thank. You. I, I was looking at shot selection and editing, and I I took some notes. I'll read some of them. If it gets too long, I can insert them later in the conversation. But um, before we even started, I watched it and wrote some things down that kind of caught my eye. So sorry if my I'm looking down at, at a few times, but. Um, one of the things I was struck by was how the camera is basically getting closer in terms of the shots that they're using in terms of, you know, wide, medium, medium close-up, and then full-on close-up as the scene progresses. So, like, in particular, when they are, when they pull into Moe's Motors and he has the flashback and they cut back, we don't see the two shot of them together. Uh, at that point, it's cutting between the two of them, but they're slightly wider close-ups, like we call them medium close-ups, I think. And then we go back for the other flashback where he sees her in the motel, and when we come back, it's extreme close-ups between the two of them for the rest of that scene. Like, the only variation is when he yells at the men, they show them scattering just so that I think it might feel weird if you didn't see what he was yelling at afterwards, but they don't show it before. They show his reaction and then them scattering. And the whole scene is played in these extreme close-ups of the two of them where it's like, you know, top of the head to like barely uh, the neck. And they just get their expressions get to fill the whole frame. Thank you. So I'll, I'll say other things afterwards. Yeah, there'll, be, there'll be time for sure. Um, yeah. Who'd like to go next? Oh, I can go. Um, I think that the most important when it comes to talking about performance is uh, Cheryl Lee just like selling this, uh, and actually to a to an extent that it was like very upsetting to her because I don't know who here has read um, Scott's uh, or the uh, Al Strobel interview in Blue Rose magazine, but uh, Al Strobel talks about how um, his wife had helped comfort Cheryl Lee after I'm not sure if it's like onset or later on in the day, but like Cheryl Lee was very upset. And you can tell in that performance that she was like giving it her all, and it was like all the anxiety that was going on with the honking of the horn and uh, Al Strobel yelling that it like really got to her. And I think that's something that permeates the rest of the scene. And then, you know, when we cut to uh, uh, Ray Wise's performance, I think that obviously he sells the anxiety, but for me, the part that's very stressful to me, it's when she directly questions him about like, where were you? And like, he has like the worst poker face saying no. And the way he, he yells, leave us alone, it just sells that he is caught in like, you know, like in a total lie. Um, yeah, so I mean, those two, like, obviously those are absolutely incredible performances. And uh, Al Strobel, it, I think it's actually interesting because I, I don't think too many people on a first watch would really understand what he's saying. I actually later on, like way later down the road, like had to read through what he said. But they're just like this combination of how all these performances come together. And, uh, you know, that, that's not even going to Pamela Gidley as uh, Teresa Banks, because uh, there is that sort of 
trying to sell you know the whole sex worker thing of like trying to make him feel like he's like this like really cool guy but there's that shift she has when like he covers her eyes um yeah again like well i can talk about more uh, and i know there wasn't really a six second six second time frame i just don't want to talk over you know john or andrew or anyone yeah thank you carla very very interesting um and it's hard for me to not talk about all the connections this scene has to other parts uh before and after this scene including a lot of stuff in the return but i focused on sound and it seemed like uh, i was really like the full kitchen sink was thrown at this scene um there's a lot of sort of natural sound a lot of screeching of the tires yelling of the actors um a lot of sound effects and sound design stuff as well that sort of whiny sound that we're also familiar with comes and goes um uh the the character with the mask and the stick sticking out forget i forget his name um he has his own little sort of uh jazzy type black dog sound playing um when we see uh pamela gidley in the bed there's a strum on a guitar that sounds like the first strum we hear in the red room which is very interesting um uh just a lot of chaotic uh, elements created by the sound. A, a lot of uh, reminiscences to Bobby at the uh, intersection in the return when you have that just chaotic street scene. But maybe maybe more on that later. Um, Andrew? Um, thinking about scene placement, I mean, I know this is, this scene comes almost right before, you know, things really start to go off the rails for Laura. And it's just such an interesting placement because this scene going from her in the car to Leland in his flashback almost satisfies um, the storytelling concept of anagnorisis for both of these characters at the same time, where she now comes to her anagnorisis or full realization about um, her dad. I mean, this is where it really starts to sink in that it is him. And it's a moment where during the flashback, I mean, obviously Leland already knows kind of what he's doing at this point, but but we really get to see him kind of come to a realization of how pathetic he is, you know, as he turns the corner and sees, you know, his own daughter, you know, hmm. like his kind of whatever, just the sad nature of his like incestuous longing kind of put in his face, you know, and disgusts him kind of. Um, so just a great place for that as we move into the climax, you know. Very, very interesting. And uh, I just looked up the word as you were talking. Yeah. Good good one. Anagnorisis. Um, John? Yeah, I'm going to, I guess I'm going to play off a little of what Andrew just said. I was thinking about it. Um, uh, and I might be a little um, critical uh, since we all love Twin Peaks and certainly I do. But there's room, I think, to question some things. And so I question this a little bit, watching it, I guess, out of context, um, why the flashbacks happened here. Obviously, there's been this disruption. There's been this eruption, uh, sort of breakthrough of energy that triggers these reactions in Laura and Leland. But from a storytelling point of view, I just... And I know that Lynch struggled with the editing on Firewalk with Me and trying to get it to the certain length and convey all the information that he wanted to. And in fact, 
he couldn't convey all the information that he wanted to. But um, it, it seemed, I guess, I felt it almost seemed a little forced that the flashbacks happened uh, for Leland in that moment. It, it seemed like it, and again, I'm seeing it out of context, so maybe if I saw the whole thing, I, it would it would work better for me. But I was just trying to figure out what the motivation for Leland to, to have those flashbacks at that particular moment. I, and, I, I can probably address that because it's in the scene right before that. When he okay. walks into the house, he sees Donna and Laura together right. on the couch. And then okay. it flashes to her and Renette. So Excellent. I think that, that's that, the that around it. And, and so I'd forgotten, I'd forgotten that. It's been a while since I've seen it. Um, so, okay, well, in, in a way, you answered, you've answered my critique, which was I felt that at least, again, within the, uh, you know, um, you know the, the scene out of context, it just seemed like it didn't, didn't quite work for me. But, um, but yeah, okay, I forgot they had that part of it. Um, uh, and I, I would also, I guess, uh, um, you know, also comment on the sound. I mean, the sound there is is amazing. And I think Lynch likes to, you know, he likes to create chaos. And he creates chaos through some things that don't always seem to fit. There's a scene in Dune where Paul is about to fight Jameis uh, with the Fremen. And when there's sort of this... Uh, sort of sudden conflict if you look in the background all of a sudden there's all these flames that flare up in the background there's no and anyway there's no logical reason why in the middle of the desert there would be these flames just suddenly erupting in the background but what it does visually is create a sense of chaos and so i think lynch is doing some of that here particularly by inserting that dog barking in, in those shots where uh, Philip Gerard is yelling at Leland. Um, there's just this tumult and the dog barking adds to the discomfort and the chaos of that scene. And I think Lynch is, is clever in the way he will use things that just do not fit, but they do create, um, uh, you know, they do create the feeling the visceral feeling that he wants the audience to feel. Yeah, I, yeah, I feel like there's something almost like ritualistic in this scene, which I really love, like the way it's structured and the way it flows. And I think, you know, because before I kind of outlined the change in the shot selection, I didn't really, I guess, get into why I think that is so effective. I mean, for one thing, just viscerally, it ratchets up the intensity as you go and he saves those, those just, and there's something about the lighting too. There's like the texture of their skin, the kind of the sweat. Like there's just something like, like crystal and perfect about those shots. And he saves them till the very end when the characters are confronting each other. Um, and they're not really, the, their exchange of gazes, I think, is really interesting because Laura's staring right at him as she asks him these questions. And he won't look at her as, and until the final point where he just flat out lies he turns to her and he says oh yes i was like before then it's all hesitation he's looking straight ahead he's his very, thoughts very, are bill, very bill he's things right there yeah. That, yeah right yeah and then it's it's hey. right lynch lynch is good with characters in desperate uh moments and so he turns and looks at her and at that moment she's not looking at him she kind of looks away oh I, I don't know and she can't like quite look back at him so it's these two characters they're like out of sync, but also 
really pushing each other. And to, this is the moment, this is one of the most crucial scenes in the, in the um, film, I think. And the, the Teresa Banks does it on, uh, the Teresa Banks flashbacks do it on like a kind of obvious expository level. But I think even just the way the dialogue occurs between Leland and Lara gives it this importance, which is this is in some ways the, I wouldn't say quite the reveal scene because we kind of get two of those sandwiching this. We get her in the bed, seeing him in the bedroom. We get before that her seeing him come out of the house. But this is the scene where we get his uh, own responsibility and sense of it. And, um, you know, we, we kind of like, I love the fact that when we cut into the flashback, we see the magazine and we hear his voice. We don't see him looking at it because they have that shot and it's in the missing pieces. And then, you know, Anthony, you and I were talking about which version to kind of go with here. And there's like a cut where they combine the missing pieces together. And I just don't think it's as effective for me. Um, and one of the reasons is when you cut in there, it's like, here we are watching Leland. It's like, no, 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 no. We're experiencing this through Leland's eyes in this moment. And this whole flashback has to unfold that way. Other than the one moment where Teresa is looking back at him, which I love, where she kind of gets this moment of recognition. Um, and I, I've talked about this before, so I'll make it brief, but I do love the fact that we don't see the ring on her finger. Um, to me, throughout this film, it's associated with, um, uh, I think, knowledge in a way, like her knowledge of who Leland is, Laura's knowledge of what Leland did to Teresa, Leland's knowledge of his daughter being involved with all this and so we don't see the ring because an ice uh, pack is kind of blocked or an ice um, tray is is being held in her hand so it's blocking our view keep in mind her arm goes numb particularly when she doesn't have the ring on it and then she turns she looks back like Who, what did I just what's going on she's starting the wheels are starting to turn and in that moment you see the ring flash because just because her hand lifts it's a practical thing but it also serves the symbolic purpose. Maybe accidentally, I don't know, but, you know, Lynch has brilliant intuition. So if it's accidental, it still makes sense. Oh, I had two things that stuck out that both connect with, um, well, like for one, going off the sound, this connects to what John was saying earlier about like the ambiguous motivation of the Lodge spirits. Um, like in the show, you know, we kind of see the little man and and Philip both kind of presented as helpers, right? But here that you know we, we learned that the little man is also the arm, presumably the the kind of whatever demonic arm that Mike removed. And when and in this scene, the first thing we hear when, when he comes up on him is that the whooping sound of, of the little man, which kind of ties the little man with Mike and Philip Gerard and kind of throws those motivations into doubt, especially when, when it's revealed at the end that he consumes the Garmin Bosia and speaks through Philip Gerard to do it. Um, and also with performance, just a great little choice, I think, that kind of goes off what Colin was saying, is how when, when Pamela Gidley is in bed with Ray Wise and he puts his, you know, hand over her, her face, you can just see her just, you know, go limp, which is Something you might do if you're a sex worker suddenly in a precarious position with a with a nasty man. Just go limp, you know, try not to, like, resist or make it worse. Just a great little touch from her to kind of just freeze up like that, kind of. Actually, one thing I want to say is that uh, this struck me the, fir uh, the first time I watched Firewalk with me 
is uh, how these flashbacks are used to show the magnitude of how damaging these secrets are. Because for you know the way I look at it is in the original series, where you think of characters like Hank or Catherine Martell, Leo Johnson, uh, Josie Packard, they're all living like these double lives. We're just seen in real time, but having these flashbacks, especially like relatively close together, it kind of gives the sense of how damaging it is that like for like close to a year, like Leland knew about like you know what Laura was doing. Laura's starting to pick up on a lot of things with him. Uh, and it's just showing just like, you know, how like this stuff really comes back to haunt you. It's like, I guess to cycle back to the original series, it's when um, James is at Donna's house and he's talking about how they don't want to have secrets because of how like how much damage that can be to a relationship. And uh, so I, I just think of how effective that uh, Lynch used that uh, that so effectively in this movie in particular. Yeah, I love the fact, too, that um, the scene, even though the central action is kind of this strange one-armed man driving up in a van and yelling at them. Leland keeps talking about him after it happens, and almost all of the things Laura says, even sometimes while it's happening, are about Leland. Like, she does have one moment where she says, who was that man? Did you know him? And it almost feels like even there she's talking about Leland. Like, who was that man? So there's, like, this sense throughout, it's almost, like, it's not as literal in Mulholland Drive where we're seeing a dream refracting, like, these things are kind of really happening within the Twin Peaks world in a different way. But you almost get the sense of like, there was no man in the van and Lara is reacting to some freak out by her father. You know, like it's just this kind of amazing writing and delivery in that scene where it's her instinct is like, what's wrong with you? Calm down, stop yelling. Even though this guy was the one who within the you know dramatic context of the scene was instigating it all he's really there as like some kind of almost like visual audio catalyst for what's really a scene between these <laughs> other characters. That's interesting because uh, so is the choice to, uh, to give readers dialogue that we can't really hear, um, which <laughs> yeah. will, and, or, or the creators of Twin Peaks will do that now and again, um, because it, the words matter and they are very interesting when you put the subtitles on or when you, when you find out, what Gerard is saying, um, but it's more that uh, sort of visual, visceral, like bombardment that is like really in the forefront more than more than the actual dialogue. One one thing I wanted to um, ask you guys, and also this will probably be on YouTube, I imagine, and anybody who wants to comment and add in, that would be great. Um, I have a little question: the the worker at the uh, gas station, and it's funny that it's another gas station. He says something to Leland. He's like, you don't want to hit the brakes like that. You know, he's like, take care of your car. And then he keeps talking, but his audio cuts out for like a full sentence. It's very strange. And if anybody can imagine any lip readers out there could come <laughs> said, I'm very, I'm very curious. I'm sure it's not important, but it's really weird. I actually, I'm, I'm really glad you brought that up because one of the things I wanted to mention was there's a couple elements in the scene which are almost comedic. One is that guy. Um, and, you know, Lynch always kind of uses, I guess, difference like disability or like some personal quirk, usually uses it somewhat for humor. So like we have two in that we have the guy stuttering, you, you, you'll burn out your engine, all that. And then also the old man very slowly going across the crosswalk. But it feels like these were things that he had in mind before that he really reduced in the editing because the you almost don't notice them. Like, I probably saw the film a few times before I even picked up on, 
oh, it's another funny old Del Nibbler. Like you don't even, he, he doesn't close in on it. It's only there to like serve its purpose. And my guess would be he probably shot more with the mechanic and maybe more with the old guy. And in the end, it was like, no, this isn't wild at heart. Like there's a few elements in Twin Peaks and you'd see more of it in the film, in the Chet Desmond scenes that are like kind of leading off of that like absurdist Lynch energy of the early 90s where he almost didn't, and the script he wrote with Bob Engels certainly has this in spades. And then it's like in the process of making it and watching Cheryl Lee perform, it kind of became this different thing and flowed more into like the Lost Highway era in a way. So I love looking at the film and almost picking out like, oh, there's a little wild at heart. There's a little like on the air that kind of got cast aside when he figured out what film he was really making, which I think John has written quite a bit about that process. Um, it kind of, I think, turned me on to it in a way. I, I guess since we're actually kind of in the, I guess, kind of miscellaneous aspects of this, of these scenes, uh, one thing I was thinking, and John, it might have been your interview with Al Strobel, but I, I know that he said at some point, there's that scene because he's driving like that truck uh, and he slams like a little too close to the car that apparently that was uh, the car Leon was driving was actually David Lynch's car. And like, I think David Lynch was like angry. I don't know if he yelled at, at Al Strobel, but he was clearly unhappy with like, nearly legitimately crashing because Al is driving like, you know, it, it's like dangerous driving. This is not just some stuntman who, oh, I mean, I, I you know, I, nothing, I, I don't know, but, uh, but you can tell that there's something very unwieldy about the way he's driving that you wouldn't see in like other films. And I think the fact that he almost crashed in that car and the way that he like recklessly drives around those old people, it just has this like kind of weird sense of danger like it's something you don't really see in like you know big and i know this was not a big budget movie but it's just something that you don't really see you know too often of that like serious danger like in like these otherwise kind of small scenes and he lost his arm in a car accident now that i think about it as like a teenager in the yeah. 50s flew out of the thing got his top of his head knocked off and his arm killed so that is i've never thought of that before i don't think mm watching that scene that he's almost reenacting his own trauma and in I, a way <laughs> yeah i think i'll struggle i could be wrong i think he said that was his own car that uh that way yeah, yeah. yeah. chinook and uh he actually <laughs> drove it to uh one of the twin peaks festivals i think it was 93 or 94 uh, i got pictures of it uh that was that's what he lived in that vehicle he drove that around in oregon and he drove it to the set of Firewalk with me. Uh, was supposed to one our man or Philip Gerard was supposed to be driving a different vehicle in that. Um, I forget. He says what it was, and I forget what it was. It might have been another big car. But um, he told Lynch, "Hey, I could drive. You know, I drive this." And you know, Lynch, being Lynch, saw an opportunity to bring something unique to that. To that, and so. Yeah, that's that's Al Strobel's camper, <laughs> which he's driving in in those scenes. It's pretty cool. I th and I think Colin just uh, uh, found a little gem because Lynch was probably cursing his head off. And that's why we have that crescendo of sound to, dr to drown out him yelling at Al Strobel. Maybe that's the origin of that. I'm just kidding. Um, oh. Sorry. But, yeah, no, because usually I guess when I think of this scene, I usually think of just like the core, like just anxiety that i feel but like no now that we've died you know dissected all these different facets it actually does make me realize just the magnitude of how much is truly within 
what was it, like five, six, seven minutes of this. Mm-hmm. Uh, yeah, no, but uh, yeah, I think that, that, you know, I think that's like the way I look at it is that a lot of this stuff can look very anxiety inducing on service level. But if you look at it independently, you can like really pull through a lot of great stuff through it. Well said. Um, I do have one more scene, and this one I picked out. And instead of us picking anything ahead of time, I would like to ask a question, and then we'll answer it afterwards. Do you do you guys think there's a central sort of film element that jumps out, that sort of carries the day for this scene coming up? Or do you think there's just kind of a harmonious balance across all the elements and they, they all sort of pull an equal amount of weight? So I'd be interested to see what you guys say at the end of this. It's about two minutes long. to be on your way half an hour ago, sir. There's no loitering here. What's your name, sir? What's your name, sir? Dougie Jones. And where do you live, Mr. Jones? sir any drugs or medications have you taken anything okay sir come with me come on Man? Uh, yes, of course I do. It's my husband, Dougie Jones. Where have you been? He seems a little disoriented. <laughs> That's not a good day. He has no identification and he wasn't able to give me the street address. He only knew the house by the color of the door. Thank you very much, officers, for bringing him home. Come on, sweetheart. Personal favorite scene. Um, <laughs> Any thoughts? Uh, do, do you feel like there was something that stood out in particular or um, anything that's most worth commenting on, uh, Colin? Uh, for me, um, and this is more so something that's like, was something I was passionate, like really into like before I even got into Twin Peaks. And Joel, I actually mentioned on your shows that I was someone who was a fan of Chromatics years before I even got into Twin Peaks. And uh, this is from Johnny Jewel's Windswept album. And it was an album, it was my favorite of his soul album. I guess for anyone who's watching, I should mention that Johnny Jewel, before the Chromatics disbanded, 
he was the uh, producer, guitarist, keyboardist, and uh, he made solo albums, sometimes for soundtracks, sometimes just for his own thing. And I always thought that even before getting to Twin Peaks, that that album had a certain duality to it. And this is one of those songs, like, it was very early on in the album. And I, I kind of view it as, like, if he were to nope. make a soundtrack for Twin Peaks to return, this would have been it. And there's just something about the way that that song plays. I, It's just a very... It, I know that this is a build-up for song that's, like, indescribable to me, but it's just something about that, scene, that soundtrack that just feels so perfect for what was left off in the previous part and come into this part. Hmm. That's awesome. I play, I've played that song more than any other song since <clears throat> Encountering the Return. Just I've, I've, had that, I've had that on a loop in my classroom a million different times. I mean, I don't blame you. Like, I think it is, like, I do stand by, it's heads and shoulders, like, the best Johnny Jewel solo album out there. So I think that, I, I, I there's, at least in as terms of just strictly music, I think this scene was, like, this was just a great moment for it. I didn't intend this, but uh, to, to have this scene juxtaposed against the scene we just watched before it, with so much noise and so much chaos, and this one being so quiet and really so emotional in a different way, I just I just thought that was really interesting as far as like the range and the thing that stood out to me was um, Kyle McLaughlin just 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 that whatever those emotions are exhaustion confusion uh, just the way he plays that is just incredible. Um, how about you, Andrew? Um, well, there, there's a few things that really stick out. I mean, obviously, Windswept is a great choice. You know that um, it, m most of what Johnny Jewel does is is gold. Um, but also, yeah, and I, what I like about that scene is how much it relies on context. Like, there's something so wistful and sad about it. To see him look at this this statue that almost calls to mind who he, you know, really is, and it's like it has, it's like it has an effect on him, but he can't, you know, he's not there yet. He can't put it together. So there's this kind of wistful and faintly sad element to it that I really like. And then just um, Naomi Watts saying, "That's on a good day." juxtaposed with how out of it he is is just one of my favorite lines really probably in the show yeah john yeah i want to i want to second the performance for kyle mclaughlin there he he's he's brilliant in that scene because uh you know you, you, there's 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 so little cooper there and uh but there is a full character there i mean there's this 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 com i think somewhat complex character in that and i've written about this so i'm probably a broken record but the, the neat thing about dougie is the way he influences other people the way he radiates goodness and so you have this police officer come over um who's essentially you know encountering someone who's loitering there and the police officer is so benevolent, you know, he, he gently takes him by the arm. He escorts him home and brings him home. And, um, and then of course the way Dougie Cooper, you know, touches the badge, there's that element of, you know, he remembers being a law enforcement officer and he was a, you know, a good, you know, good guy. And um, all of that's wrapped up in there. It's very subtle, and I think McLaughlin really sells it. Um, um, it's it's a really nice scene. Yeah. So, I think one element I was really struck by watching it 
um, both this time, but also even more maybe in context is the lighting because uh, it does pick off from the previous episode, but there's a very different visual palette to it. Like the previous one, it's dusk and the lights have not yet turned on in that plaza. And there's like more of kind of an acute melancholy to it for me. Plus also that's watching it the first time. That's the first time you hear that music and the credits start to roll. And it's just him kind of touching the shoe. And it's this almost like poetic little scene. And this scene, um, I know I'm getting off of the lighting, but I'll get back to that in a second. But this scene is like much more plot heavy in a way where it's like the guy's coming there trying to get him back home and trying to figure out what he's doing there and all of that. Um, and But the, the thing that really sets it off from the other, when, when you kind of see him back to back, is now it's night and all the lights have come on, but it's sort of like a ghost town, you know? It's this beautiful green glass backdrop and these little pools of light under all of the little, you know, corporate plaza trees or whatever. And it's like, it, it just creates this whole different effect in the sense of kind of crowdedness, but also emptiness there, which I think is the perfect backdrop for this encounter. Um, and the sense that Dougie is kind of lost in this world, you know. So that's that was what I got from it, I think, on this, mm. on looking at it through this lens. You're making me think, one of the uh, writing prompts that is very accessible to most eighth graders who I teach is um, uh, writing prompts about mood. You know, like how is the mood created? And what are, you know, different sort of techniques that combine together to create a mood? Um, yeah, and this scene is really really great for that um what would you say contributes to the mood if if you all had to pick maybe one thing um i i know john and joel were talking about it. actually i think all of us are really talking about it but uh for me uh the way that uh kyle portrays uh dougie jones because i i took dougie jones on a kind of serious matter matter like pretty early on but i think i know a lot of people it's like when we get to this scene and the scene closing out from the previous part that there's something else underneath him, that there's a Dale Cooper that really wants to get out there, but he can't really convey it. And I think that just through the silence that uh, Kyle McLaughlin portrays, um, I think it's, like, absolutely remarkable to me. Yeah, the, the fact that he's he's pulling his arm into the sleeve like that is, it sort of uh, um, recalls what happened to him when he had the alcave ring and his arm went numb. It's almost as if the character is trying to sort through um, overlapping memories from different beings, you know, <laughs> that are all kind of coalescing and he's trying to sort through to figure out who he really is. It's, it's, it's really interesting. I, actually, I guess, John, I do have one question because I never thought of like the, uh, the connection of the alcave ring, at least specifically to the scene. But uh, do you think that, uh, the, you know, the fact that he wears a green jacket primarily throughout the return is uh, is, some, is the owl, is the ring sort of something that permeates, like, this kind of thought process throughout the Vegas storyline? Or is it just for this one particular scene? Yeah, I don't think the ring really has a lot of resonance uh, here. I mean, the green jacket is gone after this. Uh, he, he, he gets... Uh, he doesn't he get he gets he gets back into the black jacket right like uh, Janie he washed it for him or something and then he's back in it for the rest of the for the rest of the story uh, 
But I mean, obviously, I mean, the Alcape ring, um, well, it bounces around quite a bit in the story, but um, I, I think whatever happened to him, it's still, it's still there somehow. But I, I'm not sure. I mean, you could certainly make a connection to the color of the jacket, but I, I never thought about it before. Oh, yeah, because yeah, for me, whenever I think of green, and not just Twin Peaks, but David Lynch's filmography, I think of it, you know, because I think of like red as being a, a bit of an insidious color. Uh, blue, it's a little complex, but I don't, I think it's like there's a, a certain sadness to it. But green, I always kind of thought it was like a neutral, but it leans towards potentially nefarious. Uh, yeah, I, I, it depends on the scene, but I think of like, you know, for example, when Philip Jeffries emerges in Fire Walk with me or um, the uh, green carpeting in Lost Highway, I, I always think of green as used in these very deliberate manners where it just seems like something's a little off. And I'm glad you actually brought up the whole thing about the jacket or the green jacket is effectively discarded shortly after this, because I, you know, I, I should probably mention, I haven't done a rewatch of the return since late 2022. So I'm a little fuzzy on certain aspects, but that's just where I stand with the color green when Lynch uses it. Yeah. I think there's a, there's a reference to a man in a green jacket in Inland Empire too. Um, if not, we don't actually see him. They talk about him. I can't remember. Inland Empire is a tough one. So, <laughs> incidentally, the, the other... male rabbit. Hmm. What's that? Like the boy rabbit? I think wears the green jacket. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Interesting. I, I, you know, I have to look at that again. But I, I do know. I think it's either someone mentions a man in the green jacket, or there is a man when they're in the in the Polish scenes, or in like the the men are sitting around the table talking. I, I can't remember. But I, I remember when I was writing about the return, and was so deep, deep into it. I remember catching that, you know, that that echo that was there from Inland Empire, but I didn't explore it. So. Can anybody um, briefly summarize the scene that we just watched? Um, I guess in a concise manner, it's uh, melancholic. If I just had to use one word, and I can expand further that. Uh, I think of, like, with The Return, I think of themes of almost confinement. Uh, you know, we see this, like, you know, with uh, Dougie, where it's like, like I was saying before, it's Dale Cooper, but he can't really get out of this just yet. But I think of other things of confinement, whether it's like, uh, you know, Norma at the double R, where she's always at that back corner. Uh, ben Horn is primarily in his office. Um, Duncan Todd is uh, behind his desk, like, pretty much all, if not all the scenes, though. I think of confinement is like a big part that's like throughout a big theme of the return for me. I think this scene is sort of like uh, Dougie being aware that there's a much larger task at role, but he's like stuck in this for, for at that point, he has no idea how long. Mm. Thank you. I would say it's it's another example. Uh, this this scene is another example that that Dougie, the something always saves Dougie. The Dougie's stuck out there. But he gets home, and whenever he gets into some sort of trouble, something comes along and saves him. He deserves. It seems like he deserves it. I mean, the <laughs> guy, the guy's been through hell. Let's let's be honest. <laughs> even even if 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 somebody if this guy was or some version of him was sitting in the red room, whatever that is, for twenty five years, witnessing all kinds of kooky stuff. Um, he deserves a little empathy, I think, and and uh, I'm sure he's pretty exhausted at this point. This this to me almost feels like uh, like the whirlwind of the past 
few days or years or whatever it is, it's almost finally settled, you know, and like that long day of work, it's just, this is pure um, exhaustion, maybe realization that like, you know, now we have to go forward from this moment. You, you know, like when you have that just chaos, that little bit of chaos in your life and then it dies down and it's quiet and uh, yeah, everything sort of sinks in. I have a, I have a favor to ask each of you. Um, I'm going to just ask you for pros and cons or even just cons. So this is an approach that I use in my classroom with eighth graders, where I ask different people to focus on a different element and then basically share out what they have noticed and then sort of let the conversation um, go, go organically from there. And obviously eighth graders and you all are not, you know, the, the same, you have not developed at the same level. You know, you're obviously much more developed in this stuff. But can I just ask what your experience uh, was like doing this? And if you could critique, I'm more interested in the cons, but pros are fine too, if you don't mind. You mean the, the cons of this? Uh, of this, this method, this, I guess. Or the, yeah, this this approach to scene watching, I guess, scene appreciation or scene analysis. or um, Pros are fine, but, you know, either way. I have nothing negative to say. I mean, it, it was fun to dig into this stuff in so many different ways with you know so many knowledgeable people i mean i think it's a great idea <laughs> i wouldn't call it a con necessarily but i mean uh, um uh, as we were starting out assigning you know one particular uh idea uh, that that's useful in a lot of ways because it does keep you focused. I thinking of when I did the composition on that one scene, but man, I'll tell you with any of these scenes, you want to, you just want to ping pong around them. Mm -hmm. So, but you were, I mean, you were certainly open to that for sure. Uh, but I do like sort of the brainstorming at organic kind of, you know, chat that happens uh, around those scenes. It can tend to, spiral out of control but but um but when it comes to a lynch scene uh man i could go in thinking of one thing and then like five other things hit me when i'm watching it. i'm like oh i forgot about that like the dog's barking in that scene or you know whatever um so anyway just for whatever that's worth yeah that's worth a lot and i i, I love the experience of uh i'm just kind of sitting here listening and then one of you says something and it just sends my mind you know reeling in a whole new direction um, yeah, I love having part of the motive, love, of the motive was to actually try to like do a little bit of a close read and like try to stay somewhat anchored to the text while also, you know, taking flights in, in, a, in our uh, speculation and whatnot. But yeah, John, that's helpful. Joel? Yeah, I was just gonna say I love having prompts like that, something to bounce off of. So I thought that was a great idea. In fact, I think you mentioned it in like a sort of offhand mm -hmm. podcast episode maybe a few weeks ago and I thought oh that's good but then I kind of like forgot about it or something and something reminded me I think looking at a scene and actually um I was comparing script to scene for a Twin Peaks thing I was writing and I realized there was like a moment where they cut to the back of somebody's head and cut back and I was like oh they they filmed the lines and they cut them out and I was like that kind of reminded me of your prompt I'm like oh I gotta remind Anthony of that and see if he wants to do that because it was like there's something fun about 
like I agree, like there, you do want to take a scene holistically and you don't want to lose that. And that's the risk you sometimes run by analyzing and too sort of maybe mechanical away. But it's like there's also something really gained by zooming in. I think it's a process of like zooming in and zooming out. Mm. And you want to get yourself dexterous enough that you feel comfortable doing both. And then I think it works really well when you're like, you know, you can use the microscope and the mm. the what is it, the telescope. I don't know if that's a good analogy or not, but you know what I mean. Yeah, I do, and, and that's really well said. And I, I thank you for reaching out, Joel, because you you kind of kicked this this off uh, by wanting. Well, thank you for coming up with the idea. Yeah. So, um, Colin, thanks again, Joel. Colin. Um, yeah, I, I guess, like, you know, I, I guess I, should, I need to say is that I think this is actually a really good format where it's, like, each person can focus on one facet, and then we can build off and talk about it. I think we did, like, if I had to pick, like, my favorite segment we talk about, it was the intersection scene with uh, Leland, Laura, and the one-armed man, because I think about that scene a lot, but, like, when we have, like, five people talking about it at the same time, it can really, like, you know, it's like, I guess what John said, ping-pong, it just kind of goes off in these different directions. We talk about these different factoids that we probably didn't think about, or someone brings up something that was never thought of before. I, I think that, and this isn't necessarily a con, but I think for me, it's like if I were to do it, I'd probably be like, you know, this would be a session of like Twin Peaks only, or Mulholland Drive only, or Blue Velvet only, because I think there's just a certain mindset of like, you know, Lynch's filmography and like, you know, what I hone in on for. Uh, yeah, because I think of like with Mulholland Drive is that, uh, you know, because like with Twin Peaks, I feel like I have a broad stroke I'm relatively comfortable with. Uh, Mulholland Drive, it's something that like I was very comfortable about for years where uh, I guess to, you know, show like what my previous theory was, I remember the first time I watched it, I was dead set that the first part was a reality. And then when they go to Club Silencio, specifically when Richard Green reiterates that this is not real, that I thought the rest of it was a dream. And to me, all the stuff with Diane, like at the table, and like seeing like the man, the cowboy with like the in the in the corner of her eye, that felt a lot more dreamlike and anxiety-inducing for me. And for years, I was like very much on that on that boat. But the more times I've been watching it, and actually, John, like you know, like you know, when he, when I was at the Texas Theater last year, and I got to see on thirty-five millimeter, there was just the times like that. And before, I was like, you know, Betty has too much of a golly G thing. You know, I need to be honest with myself that this doesn't really apply to me anymore. But I haven't found something I feel very committed to yet. But uh, but again, for me, this is totally personal preference. But mm. I would, you know, I, I I love this format. But I think for me, I always like would like if it was like you no know, Twin Peaks only or Mulholland Drive only, Blue Velvet only, uh, Eraserhead only. Because I think with Lynch, there's just so many facets of him of like where he was at in his life or how he feels about it now, how I felt about then versus now. And uh, yeah, it's just that I think there's just certain ways of like the way it's formatted where it's like I can feel more mentally prepared on my end. But like I said, that's just all my preference. Yeah. I think it would be interesting to see it done with other directors and films too. Mm -hmm. uh, if that if that was ever a direction you wanted to go in, you know, because it's like talking about this and, and specifically what Colin just said, even the differences within Lynch's work and how you approach it and stuff, it's like um, there's so much potential there to talk about and it's funny too, it almost, I realized like, especially because even as we were talking at certain points, like John was saying, he hadn't seen this one particular scene in a while or something. It's like, part of me thinks it would be really interesting to do this. Actually, I know it would be interesting because I actually had a teacher who did this once, but 
to show scenes without context. So you don't know the story. You definitely lose something that way. And I think maybe for some people that would not be, it would just be too much of a mountain to climb of like, I don't even know why these characters are in the scene. But in other ways, it kind of focuses your attention even more on certain elements. So like he would show us a scene from some movie none of us had ever seen. And what we're watching is the camera movement and the things like that. And so maybe you don't know how these characters got to this point, but you're really tuned in to like how a certain angle or something makes you feel um, in a certain way. So that might be interesting too to do at some point is something none of us have seen. <laughs> have yeah. us all confidence cool. on different stylistic elements. And then you can even pull out and be like, well, here's the context of this. It doesn't have to be a mystery game, but you know, that, that part is fun too. Yeah. But yeah, just thoughts, thinking aloud. That's cool. One thing I'm walking away with is is just even more of an appreciation for how much goes into uh, this craft, you know, of, of filmmaking, which Absolutely. I don't, <laughs> you know, you, 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 I think you all know better than I do, but it's really amazing just to see how much goes into it. And uh, I have a great appreciation for, the, I guess, the artwork that we watched and for you guys, a great appreciation for each of you. Somebody should write about... Um, Mulholland Drive sometime. <laughs> yeah. I'd read don't, a book about that. <laughs> don't get me started. You want to see what I did today? Can you see that page? Oh, wow. Vision I did on that? That was all day today. Cool. That's great. You know, I put I put on my uh, whiteboard in my classroom, I just put still shots of annotations that people make in their books and in their rough drafts. So I'm going to take a screenshot of that. Oh, no, you're writing about the old couple in the limousine. I finally, after 25 years, I think I figured it out. <laughs> cool. um, I, I, I'm going to let Andrew back in. I, I, here he is. Um, but I, I think people probably are getting to the point where they have to go. T today was my birthday. Well, not was. Today is my birthday, and oh, this is a really nice birthday. present. Oh, happy birthday, birthday. birthday. I appreciate that. It was a lot of fun. Wow. And um, I th I think customary thing to do is, is there is there anything people would like to share about themselves in, in case we have any I audience? I thought you were going to say customary to sing a happy birthday. <laughs> <laughs> um, I guess... Does anybody want to say anything about themselves in case uh, others would, would want to track you down? <laughs> uh, yeah, I guess I'll start. Um, you know, I you know I do a podcast called Cream Corn the Universe. Um, right now I'm on break after uh, 57 episodes, but I do have stuff lined up throughout 2024, uh, whether it's like, you know, talking about the characters at a deep dive, talking about characters from the secret history in a deep dive, the bands from the Roadhouse, that'll be a new thing. That'll be a deep dive this year. Uh, and yeah, like I said, right now I'm on break. Uh, yeah, doing episodes like that, it's like it's one of those things where I would love to do it week after week, but I do have to realize that there is more to life than Twin Peaks and David Lynch, so I'm just kind of stepping away from that. But uh, no, I was really glad to be able to step back in because this whole week I've been like I put out my my last episode relatively recently, but there's been this itch on me. I was like, I kind of want to dive back. I really want to talk about with people. And a lot of people on this call, like, you know, it's people I've had on before who've had great discussions. Uh, you know, there's a lot of great minds that I've, like, really had the pleasure of talking to on this uh, on this chat today. So anyone can find me on, like, Facebook, Instagram, Blue Sky. Just type in Cream Corn the Universe and some should show up. 
Uh, of course, that also applies to Apple Podcasts and Spotify. But, you know, I don't want to draw on too much longer. So I'll just let the next person go. Great. Thanks. And yeah, definitely worth checking out. You, you, you're awesome. Thank uh, you. Andrew? Um, okay. Yeah. You can find me on Twitter and Blue Sky at Master Mastermind. And I do have a YouTube channel, um, Salmon Shirts Forever Productions. Um, I just kind of do have done poetry and just some work of criticism. I've taken a break, but I'm kind of going to get back into it this year with some long form criticism and stuff like that. Cool. And it's really good meeting you, Andrew. Thanks. Mm -hmm. Thank yeah. John or Joel, whoever. Um, <laughs> all right. At the same time. Uh, John, you go first. Uh, yeah. Um, I guess. <laughs> I'm writing about Mulholland Drive. Someday there'll be a Mulholland Drive book that I'm putting out. So uh, I don't know when that'll be, but um, I it, it became an easier project and a harder project, if that makes any sense. Um, but we can talk about that someday down the line. Um, I will be, and I think Colin will be up in Snoqualmie in February, uh, February 24th. Um, I don't know when this is coming out, but if anyone is in the area, um, I'm going to be hosting a panel and I'm going to be on a couple of panels and they've got me doing something else about the missing pieces. I'm not quite sure what it is right now, but um, so I'll be there. And if anyone's around, I love chatting Twin Peaks and David Lynch. So please come by and say hi. I'm sure Colin and I will be chatting a lot about it. So Thanks again, All right. Joel. Yeah, you can uh, check out my work at lostinthemovies.com. It goes back 15 years at this point. And uh, on my Patreon, actually, I'm starting a new feature where the patrons at the $5 a month tier can choose the film. Uh, they can make recommendations and then vote in a poll. So anybody who is interested in that and wants to support the work, come on over. We're, we're building it up right now. Um, that's the main thing I'm doing, plus working on, like, the three big Twin Peaks projects that I've been working on for years and years. With <laughs> Occasionally they come out, and and uh, then I keep working on them. But they do have endpoints eventually. <laughs> yeah, that's awesome. Um, this past year, 2023, I guess, um, I watched less Twin Peaks and less of Lynch's work and a lot more uh, of other, you know, other films. And I started really getting into watching movies. And I got to say, Joel, um, listening to you talk about just different filmmakers and different movies and whatnot and reading what you write is, uh, is part, wouldn't say any kind of formal education, but it's really been part of my, uh, you know, growing passion for, for well, watching thank films. You. And really appreciate that. Really, yeah, it's really good stuff. So uh, I guess I'll close I it up. Point people in that direction. Yeah, it's cool. And it's, it's a... Uh, it's it's just authentic you know it's just it's real it's passionate is it's i don't know it's it's not this bad stuff <laughs> it's the good stuff so i'm going to close this out by singing happy birthday to myself and uh, thank <laughs> you. No, i'm just kidding are we allowed to join <laughs> let me uh let me thank you again and uh whoever wants the closing word please take it silencio <laughs> I gotta go. All right. Have a good night, everyone. See you guys. All right. Take care. Bye. Let's go. Bye. Bye.